I've got the incredible joy and privilege, really, of introducing our guest speaker. One of the things that we love doing in this community is to rightly honor people before they get up. We often say, before anyone gets up to this pulpit, we celebrate them because they have intrinsic worth to Jesus, right? But what's more is the man I'm about to introduce uh, Dr. Roberta Miranda, who leads Lion of Judah Church, and he's been doing so for nearly 27, if not a bit longer, years, um, is a man who not only uh, is worth celebrating and honoring, but is a man who's got an incredible track record of um, establishing an incredible work in the city for the sake of the city and to the glory of God. Now, one of the words that we believe in is the word apostle. Uh, it's in the Bible. It's in Ephesians. Um, and uh, uh, Pastor Roberto is an apostolic gift, is an apostolic father to the city. Um, Kathy and I got to spend some time with he and uh, his wonderful wife, Pastor Meche. And we walked away and both said, we just feel like we've been fathered and mothered in God. Um, they put so much courage and strength into us. These were the early days of when we got here thinking, Jesus, what have we done? We've moved halfway across the world um, to plant a church. We have no cooking clue what we're doing. Um, and pastors um, uh, Rebecca and Meche just put so much courage in us. And I know he's going to do that for you today. And I want to ask you to be good at receiving the gift that we're going to get today. Uh, because what you're going to find is your faith is going to be stirred. You're going to see Jesus more clearly. You're going to fall more in love with him. But you're going to have a father who's been in the city, who's been through some battles, who's got some stories it's going to establish us in truth for the sake of the city. And so I want to ask you, would you please stand and welcome Dr. Rebecca Miranda. Amen. Amen. What a joy to be with you guys this morning. You've received us so beautifully, fed me and uh, accompanied me, given me some good conversation the opportunity to meet some of you. I thank you for your hospitality. And um, I thank your pastors as well. You might want to know how we met originally, what provoked my curiosity about your pastors. It is because um, we received one day at Lion of Judah, our, one of our uh, people who works in the finance office, told me about uh, this letter that they had received, this envelope from a church called The Table. I had never heard of them before. That was in the early days of uh, your planting the church. And, um, you know, in the envelope, they said there's an offering and a, a brief uh, letter, which uh, essentially said that, um, you know, they were new to the city and uh, that uh, they wanted to honor those uh, churches or those uh, ministries that had been around for a longer period of time than they were. They wanted to sort of pay their respect, if you will, through a gesture. And uh, they gave a generous offering. And I was intrigued by that because I'd never been the object of that kind of, uh, you know, attention or, or blessing uh, our congregation. And uh, I was intrigued by the fact that a young church just beginning was uh, insightful enough and visionary enough and uh, I don't know what the word is, but really respecting and honoring enough to do that in a, such a sacrificial way, to honor a congregation that has been around for a long time, much longer than they had, and uh, to have that gesture. That, that prophetic uh, uh, reaching out to churches and, and uh, the humility, I think, that was embodied in that gesture was very touching to me. So I immediately set about trying to find out who these people were. 
<laughs> and and I, they, they didn't leave. They didn't leave any phone numbers or anything like that. I, I traced them down and um, uh, called uh, the church here and uh, spoke to, uh, I guess it may have been the, the pastor of uh, Ruggles at that time. And um, he told me that, yes, I could get in touch with them. I, I asked him for permission. He gave me the, the, their phone number. And I, I wrote a text to them thanking them. And that began a relationship that has been so rewarding, so fulfilling, um, uh, so satisfactory in so many ways, and collaboration as well. Um, both Meche, my wife, and I are admirers of this young man and woman who uh, are so gifted, so uh, spiritual in many ways, and uh, so inspiring. I admire their courage. I, I admire their prophetic insight, uh, their anointing, uh, their willingness to go out on a limb in many ways. They ministered at our church individually on two occasions. And the people were touched by the prophetic insight that they, uh, they embody. So, you know, that's a sort of a way of saying, and since then, it's been a joy to collaborate with you guys. And uh, I bless you. And I, how can I not believe that God is going to do something extraordinary, even more so than he already is doing? Because you embody the beauty of the kingdom in its diversity, in its vitality, in its love for the kingdom of God, and so many other things. So, you know, you're a joy to behold and a joy to be in, uh, in relationship with. And I bless you. And I will continue to pray for you as I have already done and as I do. And uh, please do pray for us. You bless us when you visit us there at the church as well. And may the Lord carry us into other levels of relationship as well in the future. God is doing some amazing things in the city of Boston. How many believe that? Huh? <laughs> this city, I, I described this morning as a powder keg. I had never used that word before. Maybe it was Holy Spirit induced. But it is a powder keg that doesn't know it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, there are people everywhere needing Jesus Christ. And I say the more intellectual, the harder they fall. Uh, you know, the, the, the more uh, they need uh, the Lord. And um, I know that God is bringing silently, sovereignly, independently warriors. They're arriving. Some of them don't know each other. Some of them have a suspicion of why they're here. Others are clueless. But God is bringing them to the city in preparation for something extraordinary. And he's just setting up the pieces because he's a strategic thinker. You know that, right? He's a systems thinker. And um, he's bringing these godly uh, gifts to the city in preparation of an extraordinary explosion of the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do amazing things. Again, being a strategic thinker, he thinks of uh, places of leverage, places that have influence, uh, places that can distribute their energy um, across the nation and across the world. And we know that Boston is a, it is a central place. It's, it is Athens in some ways. Um, it, is a, it is a place of knowledge, of culture, of influence, of history, of spiritual lineage as well. And all kinds of voices are just floating around this city. Historical voices and covenants and uh, wells that need to be dug again. And, and the passion that gave origin and life to this city and to to New England as a whole. And I know that God doesn't forget the things that he does. And uh, godly, passionate covenants were established here by people who loved the Lord desperately and who inscribed sometimes their passion in all kinds of stone and um, places all over the city um, where that is set there as a, as a sign and as a covenant. Even the the, the, the 
spirits of hell see those things and they, re they remember that their time is uh, up, that is coming. And that God has not forgotten those covenants that were established by very sacrificially minded uh, people. And uh, he will revive those uh, pacts again. And so, you know, it's a real, thank you, brother. It's, it's a real joy to be here with you guys. And, you know, I'm going to do some personal psychoanalysis. Do you mind if I do that in front of you? I'm, I'm going to sort of um, uh, psychoanalyze myself before you. Not at your expense. I hope that you'll get something out of it as well. But I'm going to be very confessional here in a sense. And um, as you hear me saying this thing, you will hear me talking to myself. This is why I've never preached on this passage except a couple of two, three weeks ago. That very innocently, I, I just chose, you know, on Wednesday nights, it's a smaller service. And I kind of just let go and don't prepare too much and uh, grab something that the Holy Spirit gives me. And I kind of flow in it. And I was expecting just something very simple and you know, a nice homemade meal very quickly uh, with the, the, the group that was there. But, um, you know, I, I, as it happens sometimes, I discovered the whole uh, universe uh, there. And uh, it's been, I've been mulling it over and thinking about it. And the Lord has spoken to me about this passage. And so this morning I got up really early and worked on it a bit more. So this is a, this is a, a work in progress right here. Um, but I want to share with you. And the reason maybe why I haven't preached about this passage before or the topic that I'm going to discuss is because it, it, it is, um, it, I, I'm kind of a eat your spinach guy. You know, I, I preach on things that I feel are sort of substantial and foundational for people to get. And, and sometimes, you know, God wants to just express his grace and his love and his fatherly disposition to us. And he wants to um, show his tenderness to us. And uh, so this passage is about uh, no condemnation about this God who loves us so much. Um, and and, and it, it's found in Romans chapter 8. And um, I, I really feel that, you know, it, 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 uh, I hope it will bless you a bit as well. Because somehow I feel that I am being prophetic in sharing uh, this passage with you. It's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of the pivotal, central uh, chapters in all scripture. Just as Romans itself, the whole letter is. And there Paul says, therefore, and that therefore, of course, means that there's something that has preceded it, some other consideration, which is now he's reacting to and kind of bringing to a head. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Already you have a handful there, a mouthful of uh, teaching. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice the contrast between these two principles, the law of life, the spirit, and the law of sin and death, which is law itself. It says, from what, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law. Might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. And the apostle Paul is in his very complex way. Setting up this dynamic uh, of forces. That are in counter relationship to each other. You can see the complexity. The texture of his understanding. You know living according to the flesh. Living according to the spirit. Um, the law, the spirit, Jesus, 
and so on and so forth. All these things are here interacting with each other. And we need to keep that same kind of complexity. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Just a couple of more verses. You, however, we are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. We do not uh, live in that dimension even as we live in the uh, dimension of time and space, really, spiritually speaking, positionally speaking, that is not where our foundational existence lies. What we are, who we are, is resident in another dimension. We do not live in the realm of material things, time, space, flesh, earthly things. At least that's the way it's supposed to be, because a lot of us do live in that, even though we are in the kingdom. And what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is to, you know, see that calling of God to live slowly and gravitate toward another dimension, dimension of the Spirit. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body, these are all material things, by the way, flesh, body, and so on and so forth. He's, the, he's referring to this, this uh, physical dimension of the world or the bodily dimension. Though, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And this is a sort of bringing everything to a head. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. In other words, a commitment, a loyalty, an emphasis but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit, if by the Spirit you put, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. So you see that it's a, it's a, a very complex passage. And I, my mind was uh, sort of attracted to this idea of no condemnation. And that's really what I want to focus on, if I miss anything else. You know, we, we live in, in a culture of uh, accusation and condemnation. In the past uh, year or so, and even before that, um, with the whole electoral process, COVID just brought a lot of uh, tensions in this culture, in this nation, uh, into great focus. Um, we have condemned each other. The right has condemned the left. Progressives have condemned conservatives and vice versa. Religious people have condemned uh, secular-minded people and vice versa. Uh, the people who felt free not to wear masks and who resented the government imposing its viewpoints on them condemned the government, condemned uh, those who willingly and joyfully accepted the limitations of masks. Even now, when COVID has uh, sort of ceased to to be the potent force that it was before, we're still condemning ourselves, you know, when people come in wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And, um, you know, we, we have been polarized in so many ways. And, you know, that culture of condemnation 
is very much prevalent in, in our time. And I would say that, um, you know, sometimes the most, the people who profess the most liberality, I personally find them sometimes to be the most prone to condemn many times. But that's another story. I won't get into that rabbit trail. You know, I, ironically, th this culture, which is so insightful and so enlightened, is probably the culture that is most uh, prone to self-condemnation, to guilt, to accusation. You know, one, one of the things, it, it's, it's ironic. It's paradoxical. But we have so much insight these days. I mean, we, uh, psychology, counseling, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, just, it, it just uh, proliferates like crazy. We read all kinds of books bearing insight. Books of every sort that delve deep into the human psyche, into human sensibility. I mean, we're constantly being uh, dazzled by the insight. And I know in the Christian culture, particularly evangelical, modern, educated culture, I mean, there's so much good reading to be done about emotions, about every nuance of uh, spirituality that you can imagine. There, there is a, you know, a proliferation of um, understanding and insight about the emotions. And yet, you know, personally, I found myself the other day thinking that, you know, that insight, that that abundance of insight makes us more guilty because it makes us more able to see the sinfulness in ourselves, the failures. I was just uh, uh, in, audio, uh, in Audible listening to a book, which, by the way, I recommend highly. Um, it's uh, the, the, uh, the Spiritually Healthy Leader. It's a, there's a whole industry of those books, you know, on spiritually healthy leadership, churches, and so on and so forth. And... Um, you know, this very insightful person whom I respect highly, and that's why I'm listening to the book. You know, but you see also the agony that that very person who, who's so capable of seeing the nuances of the personality is also struggling with his own and feeling, I know so much that I, I got to live by that now. And I got to reflect that insight in my way of being. And so many times, you know, the, the more we know about the emotions, about spirituality, uh, the more prone we are to be in agony because of that insight. And, uh, you know, it requires that we understand that in order to navigate it carefully. Because I think uh, we are suffering from neurosis even within the Christian church because we are so capable of critiquing ourselves and critiquing the, the, the flaws in all the people that we're around, our husbands, wives, children. The children certainly have a, a, an overdeveloped capacity to criticize the parents. And, um, you know, we, uh, we can critique ourselves to death, even nationally and historically. We can, we can critique the flaws and the, the faults of our nation. And we can end up uh, crucifying and condemning. And uh, we ingest that, we internalize it, and then we live in that kind of self-condemnation. And in the inclination to condemn others as well. And there has to be an antidote to that. And this is what I think that this, this beautiful word uh, provides uh, here. The Bible teaches us a lot about guilt and about law and about condemnation. But especially in light of Jesus in the New Testament, that brought a whole new dimension to that whole dialogue. And so now the Bible teaches us also about how to handle guilt, how to deal with guilt, how to deal with sin, and what God has done to um, help us in that uh, uh, 
direction, how to overcome it. Because if it is not dealt with well, condemnation can debilitate. Self-condemnation especially can paralyze. Self-condemnation can uh, turn you into uh, an overly lucid being, always illuminated by this fluorescent lighting that shows every flaw, every hidden motive, and that uh, paralyzes you. And then it, you, turn to, you tend to turn that light on others as well. And uh, it can turn you into a very condemning, critical individual as well, just as this culture has uh, uh, learned to do very well. So, you know, we have guilt from past mistakes. I raise my hand here. How many of us have, has, have made mistakes? I see people um, in my own congregation who have been homeless, uh, drug addicted, in all kinds of lifestyles who got to know the Lord in a later point of life. Now their children are reflecting, unfortunately, the mistakes that their parents made when they were younger. And so these parents live with guilt as they see the consequences on their children. They feel, I failed my children. Now here I am reaping in their own struggles the things that I did before, the neglects. I've had to deal with people like that in my congregation many times. They see the mistakes that they made and they see their children reflecting those mistakes and they are weakened and uh, they are guilt ridden because of that. As I said before, our nation is uh, ridden with guilt and its reactions are deformed by a, an excessive consciousness of all the craziness that has gone on in this nation throughout its history. And uh, that debilitates, it deforms, um, and it creates a very artificial dialogue that prevents people from having real contact with each other and from acting in ways that reflect the, the real immediacy of what we are dealing with. And sometimes, you know, the Lord says, hey, just relax. I know you're a sinner. I know you're no good. That's why I sent my son. And we have to, <clears throat> we have to accept that as well. We have to go to that point of uh, total disqualification and uh, total recognition of our utter, utter sinfulness. And there's nothing poetic about that, by the way. It is real and it is ugly. And sometimes we have to lose hope before then we can emerge to the surface. We have to understand who we are. We have to accept who we are. And then we have to choose to just love life anyway and love ourselves anyway. I was talking with uh, Nami, Namisa earlier in, in Lumiliano. I, re I remember. Um, you know, and uh, I was saying that I, I, uh, I went to Uganda years ago and... Um, I was amazed because I saw my own, I'm from the Dominican Republic and our culture is very African based if you were, for many reasons. And um, you know, I was telling her that uh, when I was there, I saw uh, how, how many affinities there were between my culture and African culture. I was not surprised, but I was delighted to see how intense those uh, relationships were. And one of the things that I really admire, I believe I'm not being generalistic here, um, about African culture is its capacity to laugh at itself to laugh at the most uh, serious things at times, to laugh at death, uh, to laugh at race. You know, we make fun of each other uh, in all kinds of ways that, you know, people will be scandalized here. And uh, we, we dance with death all around us and we're able to laugh. You know, one of the things I, I see about um, culture here in America, for example, is how seriously it takes itself how careful people are about not stepping on each other's toes, about not saying the, the wrong thing. 
And we're all, everybody's watching to see if they catch you do the wrong thing. So if your Mexican friends invite you to a Mexican restaurant, you have to be offended because how dare they uh, do that? When, they, when people just want to be nice and they want to give you what they think that you enjoy, be, be gracious and enjoy. Someday invite them home and make some Caribbean food and they'll see that you're more than just Mexican. But the thing is, you know, we need to take ourselves more lightly. And ironically, sometimes when we take ourselves more lightly in the light of the gospel, then we are free to be more holy. When we give ourselves a pass and uh, we just rest on the goodness of God, even as we strive toward the holiness of God, then all of a sudden all kinds of energies are released for us to be creative, to be holy, to be Christ-like. But the more tense we are, it's like a woman who wants to give birth and they get tense and they want that child. And the more tense they get, the less able they are to bear a child. And one day they give up having a child and they forget and then boom, there they are, they're pregnant. You know, that happens many times. It is in the folklore of medicine. Well, Katya, as I mentioned that, you know, many times uh, women cannot bear children, so they decide to adopt. And then when they adopt, they get pregnant. Why? Because now they're relaxed. They have a child, they can forget about it, and all of a sudden their womb is free to give uh, life. And many times it's like that with us. You know, I think, I know, I'm a tense human being. And you can probably get that just from looking at me. <clears throat> And from listening to me. But you know, for me, uh, lightness of being and relaxation is, a, is very much of a learned art. It is something that I have to practice every day as I stand before a congregation. After 37 years of ministry, I still have to, just like this morning here. I'm as tense as you can ever imagine, you know. And, um, but the, 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 I have found that the more we relax, our, my goal in life is to, be, is to reach the point of relaxation. Because when I reach relaxation, then I'm a genius. You know, then whatever is in me can flow easily and uh, I can do. But when, when I'm trying to impress or to deliver something that is productive and powerful and impressive, I freeze. And, and you know, the joy. So I think many times when we learn to relax in the goodness of God. In this incredible idea that God loves us, approves of us, of us, and has given us an A in the exam already. And that working through the exam is simply an exercise for our own benefit. And there's a process that he will delight in as we do that. But if we could only learn that Zen-like posture between alertness and lucidity and uh, purpose and total relaxation and then when we do that ah, the, the the power of the lord invades us and expresses itself through us and i think that this is what this passage uh, uh you know uh, speaks about um this balance that we need to maintain between two elements and i have something let me just before i get into that maybe for the, the sake of just a little um clarity. There are about five types of condemnation that I believe it's important for us to remember. And then as you do your own study of this passage later on, hopefully, you can use that prism to understand it. I think, you know, Paul, I think, is dealing with all of those. When he speaks of condemnation, cataclysma, he's dealing with all of these different elements here, nuances. Number one, I think this condemnation that comes from the law, God is a judicial God, and uh, there are consequences when you violate his will. 
And so there is a, a, a resulting condemnation that comes from violating the law of God. Death, specifically. But then there's another source of condemnation, which is Satan, the adversary. And that is one of the most sinister kinds of condemnation that you need to be aware of. Because often it will come disguised in your own thoughts. See, very few of us have the dubious benefit of having Satan stand in front of us and accuse us, like Zechariah did. Most of the time, it will be in the glove of our own thoughts and our own self-accusation. The moments when we relive those moments of indignity that we would love to forget, others to forget. And Satan is there to point it out and to show us. And we will rehearse those images over and over again. And they will do, wreak havoc with our psyche. We need to be aware of that accuser that is a Satan, that adversary who is against us. And he, he has been condemned, so he's very angry at us who have been forgiven. Yeah. See? He reached, a, he reached the point of irrevocability, if you will, in his sinfulness. And therefore, there's no, no forgiveness for him. But we are forgiven. And he hates that with a passion. And he cannot forgive us for being forgiven. And he will accuse us. Because God is a judicial God. So Satan will often use God's legal mind and inclination to attack us. To accuse us before the kingdom. And I'll, I'll, I'll look at a moment. There's a very graphic illustration of that in scripture. So Satan condemns us. That's the second type of condemnation through our thoughts, through our self-accusation. There's a, three, there's a third one. Others condemn us as well. In this culture, as I say, we condemn, uh, you know, others condemn us all the time. And it's, we have to resist that. We have to be aware of that um, because, I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, pastors suffer from that. I know I suffer from it. And sometimes the condemnation comes well disguised. In, in the form of a, of a, a nice compliment that has a little bit of bile in it. Just a tiny little bit of poison. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, pastors require such levels of uh, self-esteem. We have to be abundantly uh, sure of ourselves in order to get to zero. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's something, the Apostle Paul speaks about that, by the way. And we need to exercise that uh, preventive self-esteem, if you will, in our lives as well. Because we will always make mistakes. We will always offend. We will always reveal our fallen humanity. And uh, people will always be willing and even ravenous <laughs> to show us our sinfulness, our brokenness, our ineptitude. And uh, I think it's really good thing to do to arm ourselves preemptively with a sense of, yeah, I'm a rascal. So what? I mean, I, 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 I plead guilty. So don't, don't waste your saliva <laughs> in attacking me. You know, the Apostle Paul says that in one passage. Let me see if I can find it here. I think I put it down um, because I think it's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good thing to remember. Um, where he says, I was intrigued by that passage. Uh, where he says, you know, I don't even judge myself. First Corinthians 4 says, um, he, he says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful, which is what people expect of us. Now, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Yeah. I mean, this guy had been criticized, attacked in so many ways. And he arrived at that point. I think, you know, over time as a pastor, as a minister, as a per person who serves, uh, you must know that you're going to mess up 
you're gonna disqualify many times yourself. And you better be armed with the kind of uh, just grace toward yourself. So that when you're criticized, there's a lot of oil around your body and around your psyche that just things will just slide from you. So Paul says, I, if, I don't care. I care very little. He says, I do not even judge myself. That's the thing about self-condemnation, you see. There has to be that point where when you are overcome by this sense of guilt and of uh, ineptitude, take an aspirin. Forgive yourself. Take a moment to lucidly say to yourself, you know what? Yes, I am. Lord, I commit myself to your grace. Now, that's not all because there's other things that are involved. I'm not here talking about hypergrace. And that's the, the whole thing of this complex mechanism that he sets up. He says, I, I, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. This is the, the, these are the tensions that Paul is so good at establishing. And then he says something very insightful here. He says, therefore... Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their level of praise from God. I'm adding that level of, you know, it is so necessary for us to not rush to judgment. We have to cultivate a certain kind of generosity toward ourselves. And I speak to a lot of young types here this morning uh, because youth is the time when we can be most critical of others. I think as you age and you make plenty of mistakes, you tend to become more um, tolerant of the mistakes of others. You, you adopt a sort of a, an, a grandfatherly kind of attitude. If you could do it early, wouldn't that be even better? You would have a lot of interest by the time you get to be 50 or 60. And, um, you know, we have to make, again, a, a very deliberate um, decision in our lives to, to, be, to be generous toward others, to forgive others. You may see things that will scandalize you, but you know what? As you read scripture, you see that many times men and women of God in their process of being shaped by God and prepared for ministry and discipled and broken and pruned make hor made horrible mistakes. And only now, with the benefit of insight and seeing see the scripture, we understand what was going on. But you can imagine the people who were at that moment there watching these things they didn't, they didn't see that. And, uh, you know, God sometimes uses these very sinister instruments, surgical instruments, uh, to cauterize and to cut um, that uh, sear the soul of those that are involved in that. Peter denying Christ. Paul was just with this thorn in the flesh that he didn't even bother to tell us what it was. Maybe it was so shameful or not appropriate at that moment. Um, David, with his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his horrible homicide of a noble, great man. God, Jacob, with his calculating personality. And God dealt with each of those things. Elijah, with his attitude of violence and killing and confronting. And God turns him into mush in the desert and shows him his weakness and depresses him and then feeds him and shows him his nurturing side. And then through that soft voice in front of the cave, teaches him that he not only speaks through thunder and violence, but he also speaks with the voice of a mother, soft, soothing voice. And so we see all these different things. And, you know, it's very easy when people are going through their processes that God is dealing with you and you and your marriage and your parenthood and, and your professional life 
you, can tempt, you can tend to judge yourself prematurely or to judge others prematurely. And there's nothing more protective than a, a Christian who does not judge prematurely, who sometimes consigns things to the mysteries of God when he sees us in our worst moments and says, Lord, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to love them more. I'm going to admire them more because they're in the furnace right now of your crucible, of your teaching and your breaking. And you do not rush to judgment. You simply uh, consign it to the Lord and them as their private matter. It doesn't mean that we don't edify ourselves, that we don't confront ourselves lovingly and pastorally. Yes, we should do that. But do not judge prematurely because you do not, you do not know what fruit will come from that crucifixion. And I believe, as if, if my life reflects anything, which is that God, before he promotes me, he always crucifies me. Before he gives me a blessing, he always destroys me. And he does that with all of us. That's part of his plan. I, one thing I've learned over the years is that God is so minute in his interventions, so careful, so detail-oriented, so deliberate. And I, we are always living out these psychodramas, which include darkness, sinfulness, failure, um, and all of these things. And if we, the, those who are watching from the outside, are superficial enough to make quick conclusions, it's like arriving at a conclusion before the end of a, an exquisite novel. You don't know what expects you at the end of it. And, uh, you know, we need to be very careful with ourselves because we don't know what God is doing in that individual. So this is, I think, what Paul is saying here, talking about, you know, self-condemnation. He's saying, I've learned I don't even judge myself. I'm a mess anyway. <laughs> so in order to live, I have to just be very superficial sometimes and just take things, uh, you know, with a grain of salt. And we think we, I, I think we need to, and by the way, the more generous you are toward others when they're going through their own dramas, the more generous God will be with you the less Satan will be able to attack you. I have learned that generosity is one of the most protective coverings that we can adopt. When you are generous with others, tolerant with others, forgiving of others, you give time for things to develop and to fill themselves, you are then given grace. Satan doesn't know what to do with you. And then, uh, so grace and generosity is one of the most powerful weapons of warfare. <clears throat> and we need to exercise that grace uh, among ourselves. So you have, you know, you have these, uh, the law condemning, Satan condemning. And I'll, I'll get back to that. Others condemn us as well. We've talked about that. We condemn ourselves. I mean, we, we are experts at that. In this culture, we are always condemning ourselves. And that leads to frustration. It leads to paralysis. It leads to self-doubt. It leads to initiatives that we will not take because uh, we are doubtful of their outcome. Uh, we feel unworthy of God's grace. Um, we feel unworthy of sometimes delivering a word even that we know we have not fulfilled ourselves that could edify others. But all of these things, you know, uh, this self-condemnation. And then the final thing, as I said earlier, when we condemn others as well. So there's a whole industry of condemnation that we need to be aware of. And we need to adopt, you know, preventive uh, methodologies of that. But you know what Paul is saying in this marvelous passage of reassurance to believers in all kinds of ways is that for us who are believers, who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And if you, you, can, you can only understand the fullness of that passage when... Uh, 
when you read chapter 7. So if you're ever inclined, read chapter 7 first and then read chapter 8. Because that's, that's what he means by therefore. In chapter 7, he has condemned himself utterly. To the point that the last verse, I believe it is of chapter 7, says, Miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He has gone through exquisite measures to see that he's not capable of doing the good that he should be doing. He's incapable of pleasing God. He's incapable of doing the things that he knows he should do. He's incapable of living up to his ideals. He's incapable of living up to the law of God. I mean, he, he uh, condemns himself completely in chapter 7. He admits that he cannot get the, 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 what he needs to do. He, he cannot receive the, the, the blessing of God because his humanity is so corrupt, so fallen, that it is incapable. And he, he, that humanity is with him ever. And then it's like there's a sign of relief, a sigh of relief in chapter 8. He says, now, you know what? Despite all of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So it's like uh, chapter 7 is the potato chips. Chapter 8 is the Coca-Cola. He just drinks it and, you know, enjoys just the goodness of God. He has prepared us for the relief that comes from chapter 8. There is no condemnation. Because, you know, the fact is that we are all rascals. We are all worthy of the and we will be until we die by the way as long as we're breathing we are producing impurity it is the nature of our humanity and this is why we have to then learn how to live within this saturating understanding of God's grace and mercy one of my favorite passages in all of scripture is uh, Psalms 103 where where the psalmist says um as the father has compassion on his children, so does God have compassion on us. And then he adds, for he knows our frame. In other words, he knows what we are made of. He knows that we are but dust. So when the baby spills the milk in this beautiful linen table in the restaurant, you don't smack him upside his head. You know he's a baby. What, what, what do babies do? They mess up things. You know, and God, that's their frame. That's their, that's their psyche. They're built to mess up. And, and uh, you take that into consideration in how you treat them. Well, God does that at the level of our adult humanity. He is infinitely mature. And so he, to us, we are worse than babies. And, and he sees our frame. He says, what, could I, what can I expect from him or from her? He's going to mess up. And God has this loving uh, attitude of, you know, tolerating us, loving us, forgiving us, not condemning us. And so this is the thing, you know, that Paul is very clear on putting himself on the floor. It's like these images uh, you have in the movies about a huge gorilla coming and uh, Tarzan throws himself on the floor and uh, shows him, you know, I'm not going to fight with you. I know you're bigger than me. I know you're stronger than me. And the gorilla is appeased. And God is appeased the moment we admit defeat and bankruptcy. That's all that is required. I say, you know, the only thing that God wants is your brokenness. The only thing that you need is a contrite heart. This is what David says after his huge uh, sin. The contrite heart you will not disdain. 
Corazón contrito y humillado no despreciarás tú, oh Dios. The contrite, humble heart you will not despise. And, um, you know, this culture goes through so much effort to try to disguise its sinfulness and to prove that it is not sinful and to label its sinfulness with other names, to normalize and to make uh, normative uh, all kinds of sinfulness when it would be so much more economical if they simply admitted guilt and then they are free to live and to have relationship with God. And unfortunately, we evangelicals are very swift and quick to try to help them along the way because we have our own guilty conscience and we let them off the hook too quickly. And we have to find the balance between those two dimensions. And this is what I see in the Apostle Paul, the balance between grace and confession, law and uh, compassion, justice and forbearance. Uh, it, it, this God who... who incorporates these two dimensions within himself. And we have to try to do it our own selves as well. And so you see here this element, but I hope that I remember and go back to that. But let me just, there's, there's an image in the Bible that I, I've held for many, many years, and it has been a wonderful consolation to me. And it is found in the book of Zechariah. And you may know it, chapter three of Zechariah, you may want to go there sometime. But you know, uh, Zechariah to me is one of the most profound books in scripture. I call it the little revelation. It is the book of revelation in short, compact form. And um, I think in that, um, in that, uh, cha in that uh, chapter of Zechariah, you have uh, the, um, uh, the uh, high priest, uh, Joshua. There are two figures there, Joshua, the high priest, and and Zerubbabel, the constructor, the builder, the secular authority. But uh, Joshua, <clears throat> the Bible says that there's a scene where Zechariah finds himself maybe before the court of God or something like that. And there is the angel of the Lord who is an incarnation of Jesus, some people say. But certainly it is like a, a, a decantation or, or a, a um, slimming down of the full presence of God into sort of a form that can be digested by human eyes and human perception. But it is God. It's the angel of the Lord. It is God himself to a certain degree. It may be Christ, but it is a, an expression of God himself, his sensibility, represented in a kind of a hologram, if you will, of this angel of the Lord. And so there's the angel of the Lord. And who is, and there is um, Joshua, and there is the adversary, Satan, as well. The intriguing thing is that, uh, Joshua, the high priest, it says, is dressed with filthy clothes. And I've read a version that says that, you know, with excrement, he was, his clothing was filthy with excrement. A sign of sinfulness. Utter sinfulness. And, uh, and yet, he is the high priest. How many of us pastors have to deal with all kinds of sinfulness in our own lives, even as we minister to others? And we are continually persecuted by the awareness of our own ineptitude and our own sinfulness. And so uh, Joshua is there dressed in filthy clothes. There's no mistake about it. It is clear that he exemplifies something that is reprehensible. And there is Satan accusing, because that's what he does. That's his specialty. He's the district attorney par excellence. 
And so he accuses Joshua before the Lord. What is he telling Joshua? I can imagine he is not fit to be your servant. He is not fit to occupy such a powerful, privileged position. You need to get him out of there. You need to condemn him. He has sinned. He's accusing this man who evidently is sinful, despite the fact that he is serving the Lord. And despite the fact that God has great plans for him. Because he's, he's also a symbolic being. He embodies God's plans even for the future as well. Because it is, a, it is an end times book as well. It, it runs on two tracks. Both the moment, the historical moment of the reconstruction of the temple. But it's also our own time where the temple will be reconstructed again. And where Israel again will occupy a very important place. And so, uh, you know, Joshua is a very important being. But he is full of sin and fault. Satan is there to accuse him. This is what he does. This is what he does in our own lives. As we are not perfect parents, good uh, workers many times. We're not good husbands or wives. We are condemning of others. We serve the Lord in very imperfect ways. We lead our secret lives. And Satan is there to accuse us. And God is there also um, fashioning us, preparing us, working with us, understanding the very springs of our humanity all the little elements that make up our who we are he knows them exquisitely clearly every one of them and he's working in that and deriving actually joy and glory in working with that fallen humanity of ours and but satan only sees you know the the law and so satan is accusing him disqualifying him and that's that's a specialty but the the uh, reaction of, uh, I, I, it's unclear whether it was Zechariah or the angel. I believe that it was the angel of the Lord that says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. It says it again, The Lord rebuke you. Aren't you aware that this is a, a brand that taken from the fire? It's like a stick that is still smoking because it was pulled from the fire. Do you see the mercy of God there? Do you see God's exquisite understanding of the drama? He knows, yeah, who knows what, uh, what were the details of uh, Joshua's youth or past, what abuses he might have experienced, what sins, you know, secret sins he, he, he um, was a victim of himself, of committing. What things were there, what, you know, what he could have been if he hadn't loved God enough to serve him despite all the brokenness that he was dealing with. And I think all of that is incorporated in this idea. Don't you see that he's just a stick rescued from the fire? You know, God is able to see our brokenness. God is able to see our love for him and sometimes our utter sinfulness. He knows that we sin and then we abhor ourselves. He knows that we want to serve him and, and advance his kingdom. But there are all kinds of things that we wrestle with, like the Apostle Paul. And God sees that, that feminine quality of God. That, that nourishes, that sees the 360 degrees instead of that masculine attitude that just focuses on the little thing and just goes into the mechanical aspects of things. You know, God is able, God, God does that. And he says, don't you see that this guy, I mean, he could be a rascal. He could be a criminal. He could be a sexual predator. He could be a, a, a corporate executive exploiting people. He could be a king killing individuals. He could be a general killing masses of people. And here he is, he's serving me, and I have purposes with him, because I see his heart. I know who he is. So don't you come accusing him. 
See, you can go on, you can dwell on that image because I think it's one of the most graphic images in all of scripture. One of the most revealing images. Because we accuse ourselves, we accuse others, Satan accuses us, culture accuses us, we accuse culture. God is always trying to find a reason to bless, justify, forgive, be compassionate. And that's his heart. And so what does God do? He turns away from Satan and says, dress him in good clothes. Probably he said, take, have him take a bath. Or it doesn't say that in the Bible, but I suspect that. Have him take a bath. And then dress him with the finest clothes. Finest priestly clothes. That is the God who redeems us. That is the God, the God who forgives us. That is the God who clothes us in fine linen. Despite the fact that we don't deserve it. But he revels in kindness and compassion. And then he says a little detail. Then put a miter, put a turban over his head. The turban, if you look it up, is a sign of priestly authority. It is like a crown. It, it, the, the, the priests also wore turbans, but the, uh, the, the turban of the high priest was uh, special. It showed that he was a cut above the others. It shows his authority. It shows his sort of kingly, yes, nature. He rules over the, the church, the church. The people of God. You know, God loves to do that. When the prodigal son comes in all broken up and torn apart and dirty and in, in rags, the father says, dress him up in the finest clothes. And says, kill the, the fatted calf. And says, and put a ring, the ring of the family. That ring is the ring of authority. That you don't deserve, that you've squandered. But God puts it on anyway. Because when he forgives, he forgives overabundantly. And he, he overwhelms our sinfulness with his goodness and his love. And we have to realize that. We have to take that pill when we're dealing with our sinfulness. We have to take that pill of this God who not only redeems, but he redeems super abundantly. He washes our sins until we are absolutely. And then he, he says he throws them in the, at the bottom of the sea and then doesn't remember them at all. This is what we are, you know, what we dwell in. So he, you know, he dresses uh, Joshua and then he makes a certain clarification. He says, if you keep yourself clean from now on, you will rule over my house. So there's that, that awareness also. And, you know, God does that all the time. And that's where the tension lies for us. And I'll, I'll be finished here in a second. That... Um, you know, he, uh, it, it's, again, I was reminded of the woman uh, caught in adultery. Again, Satan accuses, the culture accuses, religion accuses. The Pharisees want that woman condemned because she has been caught in sin. So they're ready to say to Jesus, what are you going to do with her? The law says that she should be stoned to death. So Jesus says, oh, yeah, okay, all right. So, you know, he, he bends down and people, some commentators say that he started writing different kinds of sins. Lost, adultery. Uh, violence, uh, hatred, arrogance. And he just, you know, and then it says that one by one, they scurried out of his presence because they were reminded that they themselves were guilty of many of the same things. And then he goes, he gets up and innocently asks, woman, wh where are your accusers? He says, I don't know, they, they all left. He says, well, you know what? Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation, again, the word. Go 
and sin no more. That is the other half of the coin that you know, I just want to finish with. Because that is the other half that is uh, in dialogue here uh, with uh, uh, the Apostle Paul. When he gives us this wonderful news that there is no condemnation for us. But he also calls us to consecration. No condemnation, but a call to consecration. A call to live for God. A call to immerse ourselves in the principles of Scripture and of the kingdom. A call to serve God. A call to die in Him. A call to immerse ourselves in Christ. Because that economy of the Spirit is what enables us to fully be able to benefit from the economy of the forgiveness and of no condemnation. So this is not a free pass. This is not a pass of hyper grace that says, well, wow, God has forgiven me, so let us sin that there's more forgiveness. Let us help God by creating more opportunities for Him to forgive, by sinning more. No, that's not it. Um, there is this call as well, because remember one thing. We, God forgives us, but Satan does not. And so many times, you know, do not sin because you, don't, you do not want to sin. Sin because you don't want Satan to have an excuse to attack you. And he will use God's law against God's heart and against us as well. And so many times we got to be careful because God may not send us to hell, but our actions have sometimes physical consequences in the realm of time and space that even after we have forgive, been forgiven, we have to deal with them. So an addict who lived a loose life and was forgiven by God may end up dealing with uh, um, HIV or some other situation. Parents who lived crazily and loosely and sometimes even within the kingdom and don't respect the law of God, they will be forgiven, yes. But sometimes their children will reflect their own sinfulness. So there's all kinds of you know, subtle nuances that we need to keep in mind when we deal with this thing of condemnation, sin, holiness, grace. There's a point where we need to live in the tension. We need to live in the, not either or, but both and. We are both forgiven, tolerated, given huge amounts of space and grace. And at the same time, God expects us to live in a certain way as well. So that his forgiveness is not an excuse for looseness of living, for a libertine kind of life. And this is what he, you know, this is what Paul is talking about. If you read the whole passage, he says this, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a whole handful. What does it mean to live in Christ Jesus? It means to, to um, immerse yourself and lose yourself in who he is. So I'll leave you with five, um, a couple of things here. That, um, where do I put them? All right, here. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about this complex mechanism of interlocking interactive parts. And uh, each part depends on the other, like an exquisite clock mechanism. So you have God's grace, forgiveness, his tolerance, his seeing way beyond what we are doing now and how we will use that to create powerful instruments for his glory. But then there's the other side, the call also to be very alert to sin in our own lives and to understand that God calls us to exercise certain attitudes that will be in counter relationship with that freedom. So... These are some of the things that I, I think are important to remember. One, this complex mechanism is dependent on the, the death of Jesus on the cross and the crucifixion of the body, of the flesh, of sin on the cross. Jesus was not only being crucified, but flesh, sin, 
all the imperfection of humanity was being nailed in his body because he incarnated all of that imperfection. So this mechanism is dependent also on, on the fact that we need to tune ourselves and to buy into what Jesus did on the cross. If you have not bought into what Jesus did on the cross, if you have not signed at the bottom of the page and uh, accepted uh, the, 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 the symbolism and the effectiveness of what he did on the cross, it doesn't work for you. So you have to be in, into that system. Number two, you have to identify personally with Christ in his death and resurrection. Just as people identify with Adam and the death that comes from his sin, as we identify personally and enter into communion with Jesus, then we are partaking of all his glory, all his achievements, all his goodness. So you have to identify. I think that's part of what he means by being in Christ. So identify personally with Christ in his death and resurrection. This is why it's so important to actively identify. There has to come a moment of crisis in your life where you have to say, yes, I'm going to sign on that dotted line. I'm going to believe that what he did and what he accomplished on the cross is for me. And then you enter into that economy of grace. Number two, three, you have to remain in Christ as the source of your life and spiritual sustenance. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of effectiveness. Jesus is the source of holiness. Jesus is the source of fruitfulness. And you have to yoke yourself to him. You have to connect desperately to him. And to the life that flows from him. That's what it means to be also, to, to be remain. And you have to do that every day. Every day you have to renew your remaining in Christ. Um, number four. You, wow. Thank you. They, they, they really approving of it. Number four. Uh, putting our first priority on serving the kingdom. There's a lot about living in Christ that, that is expressed here. You know, what Paul is saying, if you're going to enjoy these benefits... You better um, put your first priority. You know, our life, I, I admire the young man here. Eli, I think it was. Eli, if you're here, raise your hand. <laughs> Missouri? Yeah. yeah, Eli came from Missouri to Boston to, to work on the kingdom. What a beautiful thing to do. Now that's, that's making of Christ. Some of you have done that as well, perhaps. You know, you have to put Christ first. This cheap Christianity has to go out the window very quickly. Oh. You know, the freedom is not free. It costs Jesus' blood, and you need to live in that debt. Not compulsively, but freely, you have to do that. So you have to, there's a lot there to bite on and chew on, but um, you have to, your first priority has to be on serving the kingdom. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Read Colossians 3 sometime, Okay. You have to remain also mindful and focused on the things of God every day, every moment. You have to tether your mind to the things of God, the word, worship, um, prayer, fasting, uh, the things that inure to the benefit and the advancement of God's kingdom. You have to be focused on that all your life. This is not cheap Christianity. This is a Christianity that demands your all. This is a Christianity where you are a spiritual athlete. And every day you do your exercises in order to stay in shape. Because you don't know when God is going to call you into service. So it's a 24-hour a day, a mindfulness in Christ. Keep your mind in Christ. If you love the world, then you're, forget it. You're not going anywhere. Because the, the love of the world is enmity with God. Long story there. Number six, living the life of a disciple. You have this, I've already alluded to that in the other ones. But you know, being a disciple, 
means you follow Christ wherever he calls you, whatever he does. You observe him compulsively. Uh, you know that your life is not yours. You have ceased to be a private citizen. Your family now comes second in a certain way. I understand there's a lot of uh, you know, nuance there. But uh, you are not a citizen of the world anymore. You are a disciple. You are in service to the kingdom. And you are supposed to live a sacrificial life. Your life is not your own. Your priorities are not your own. Complete consecration, single-mindedness in the things of the kingdom of the spirit. Number seven, you have to seek after holiness. You have to be passionate about holiness. That's the, that's the other side. Don't think that just because God has forgiven you, you can just let go. No, we have to want to be holy unto God. We have to want to be pleasing unto him. We have to agonize sometimes. Even as then we say, okay, enough. Now enjoy the goodness of God. But I, th I admire agonizing people in the Bible. I really do. And we have to seek God with all holiness. Read Romans chapter 12 one of these days. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is the only way that you will confirm God's goodness and blessings on your life. The only way to enjoy God's promises is to live as a living sacrifice. A lot of people are living cheaply the Christian life, and they don't enjoy the promises. They say, why? Why did God say this and that? I'm not enjoying. Well, die, and you'll see how easy it is to enjoy the goodness of God. Seek after holiness with all your heart. Eight, abstain from sin uh, as a practice. Habitual, insistent sin. I think this is what the Apostle Paul, you know, the Bible speaks often about the practice of sin. We will always sin, but the difference is, do you practice it as a matter of course and as a habit without feeling the, 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 the needle of sin in your life? Or do you do it... Um, you know, on moments where your humanity just entraps you. And then you commit yourself to God and you go back to square one. You clean yourself and return to fighting for holiness. So, again, sin will always entrap you. Sin will always betray you. But it has to be an exception. It has to be a moment where you, it is marked by this sense of immediate recognition and quick seeking forgiveness. A lot there. There's a difference between practicing sin and uh, falling into sin unwittingly, unwanting, on and on and on. Two more. Number nine, keep short accounts in your life. Keep short accounts. As soon as you offend, run quickly to the altar. If you offend others, if you abuse others, be quick to seek reconciliation, confess, ask for forgiveness. Keep short accounts. Don't let things linger. Because the more you let things linger, the more you give Satan opportunity to attack you, to destroy you, to accuse you. So quickly, you know, uh, out yourself in any way you can before the enemy does it for you. So that's an important one. Keep short accounts. Confess, seek forgiveness from others and from God especially. And finally... I've said that before, trust actively on the mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of the Father. Practice reliance on the goodness of God, His mercy, His compassion, and use it preemptively. Use it as a nice big jar of medicine that you have always handy because you will offend many times. And then you have to rely. This doctrine of no condemnation ensconced, inserted into the call to holiness that has to be your modus operandi. It has to be the center of your being and your consciousness in the kingdom.
So these are some things that I, I you know, share with you this morning. Let's take a moment to do whatever you want to close your eyes or whatever. Let, let the word of God just uh, linger in your being. If there was something there, some thought that may have been of worth to you, would you just take that market in your heart, in your spirit right now and say, I'm going to think about that. And if you want to just, in a, in a very encompassing way, confess your sinfulness, as I do even now, do that. Throw yourself at the feet of the Lord you know, in the mercy of God. Say, Father, I trust in you. So Holy Spirit, come, remind us. Would you show us those areas that need to be dealt with and presented to you this morning? Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. And uh, Lord, we are quick to acknowledge that we need you so much. But at the same time, we're so grateful for the kind of father that you are. You're so good, so generous, so compassionate, so kind. And your goodness is just overwhelming. It overwhelms the accusations of the enemy. And we entrust ourselves to you, to your justice, to your love. And uh, we determine again to be holy unto you, to please you, to serve you, to let go of all the inclinations toward uh, material things, the material world. give you the honor, the glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Amen. This is the Sunday morning podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.